The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Awesome. Well, if you want to uh, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be spending our time there this morning in verses 19 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. These are rather famous lines of Scripture, and for good reason. Uh, one day we will do a full series on Hebrews, and I'd really love for us to do that. I'm looking forward to that. And when we do, we'll notice that these verses, Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, these verses seem like a bit of a sum, summary of the argument that the author has been making for the previous 10 chapters or so. It feels like a bit of a, a conclusion, like a bit of a, it, therefore, all of this. And they had some pretty massive implications for us. And we're going to get into the, into the text in just a bit. But today, being uh, not just our fourth birthday, but we call it Vision Sunday, uh, because we want to spend a few moments this, today thinking about who we are as a church and what we're doing as a church. It, we call it Vision Sunday, but we could just as easily call it Trajectory Sunday or Who We Are Sunday or whatever it is about, because we just want to talk about what we're doing here as a church, kind of uh, configure our minds to, to, to think through, okay, what are we doing together as a church? We're all about discipleship. We want to grow as disciples. Our mission is to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ for all of life. That is, we want to see unbelievers become believers. We want to see those who, who have rebelled against God, sinners, to, to confess their sins to God and come to him as their Lord and Savior and bow the knee to him. We want to see Christians who have fallen asleep, professing Christians who have fallen asleep and have maybe become lukewarm in their faith to wake up to the glory of God. We want to see all of God's people grow and mature such that they would become disciples, that they would make more disciples and trust in the gospel, make disciples who can articulate the gospel, defend the gospel, and proclaim the gospel. We want to see disciples made whose actions are flavored by the gospel and whose words are seasoned by the gospel. And we want to see more churches planted that more people would be reached with the good news of Jesus. And this passage here this morning is going to help widen our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's going to heighten and lengthen and deepen it. It's going to stretch us because we're going to see the wonderful implications that it means to be uh, in a relationship with God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me read the text to you, uh, then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works 
not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's dedicate this time to the Lord. Father, your word says that your words are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. Jesus, we thank you for the purity of your word that is good for us. It is precious to us. It is clear for us. It is bright for us. And Lord, as we spend this time in your word, may it become clear and wonderfully true that we would love you more and more. Lord, command the eternal blessings of this passage to our souls. Help us, make us believe, O Lord. May our hearts find the footholds here and climb to know your glory. Holy Spirit, I ask for your help as we open this. That you would bring me, Lord, in line with your word and ensure that anything that is not of you, Father, would be quickly blown away like the chaff, Father. But that your word would remain forever. Commit, Lord, this, your words to our hearts. Amen. If I were to ask you who you are and really what made you tick, how would you answer that question? How would you, how would you describe yourself? Like, this is who I am. It's likely that you would point to the things that are true about you and the things that are, have been maybe the most enduring, have had the most endurance as truth for you. They've been true about you for a long time and they've defined you. Or you might point to the things that are the most obvious about you, the things that you can't deny, the things that are clear for you and for everyone around you. Or it might be that you point to the things that are most exciting, the things that you've achieved or the things that you've had the opportunity to do. And then if I was to ask you, why are those things true of you? Why is that true of you? You would probably point to some season or something back in your life that caused that to happen for you. Some crucible uh, for your life that was formational for you. Something like, well, the doctors just took such great care of me and made me want to become a doctor. Or I suffered this enormous tragedy and it had this defining moment in my life and I've seen God work through that. Or it took a lot of hard work, but it's part of who I am today. It's a cause and effect. And effect. There's a, this has happened, and since this has happened, this is who I am and this is what I do. And here in our text that we're paying attention to this morning, God tells us a couple of things that are true about us. Things that he says, this is true of you. And these truths are enduring. These truths are exciting. And these truths are obvious. And they are all of grace. These things that are true of us that are brought out in this word, they're not true of us because we've been so clever to achieve them or so smart or, or good to attain them. 
It's because God has been gracious enough to give them to us. So what we have here in our text is two things that are true of us and then three things that for us to do. Two, that are, two, things that, two sentences that start with, since this is true of you, since this, therefore, now we must go and do this. Let us do this. The first thing that is true of us is that we have access to God. We have access to God. In verse 19 it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. I, um, I love Bunnings. Part of the reason why I love Bunnings is because I love doing projects around the house. And there is not an aisle in Bunnings that does not catalyze some new project in my mind and I start thinking, ooh, I could build a shed. Ooh, storage options. Ooh, I could get this for the pool, whatever it is. And it's no wonder why Kirsty gets nervous every single time I say, I'm just going to go pop down to Bunnings. But there's not a place in Bunnings. It just seems to inspire me everywhere I walk. I'm like, oh, I could do this. And it just seems to make me think, oh, these things I could do. There is, however, one area of Bunnings that I've never been to. It's the door that says, staff only. Now, I have no real desire to go in there. I don't think there's anything in there that interests me. But even if I did, I would not be able to because that door is for staff only. It's exclusively for staff only. I don't have permission to go in there, let alone boldness to enter that door. And if you're a Christian... If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are saying, if you've said to the Lord, Lord, when it comes to that day that I stand before you in judgment, I'm not going to have a long list of the things that I've achieved for you to, to justify me. I'm going to be hanging on to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he will stand on my behalf. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you're a Christian, then something that is true of you, plain and simple, is not only that you have permission to enter the sanctuary of God, but you actually have boldness to enter. You have every reason to be bold about entering into the presence of God. That's what that word since implies. This is true of you. This is already true of you. You have boldness to enter into the sanctuary of God. Now, the sanctuary that he's referring to here is a figurative holy of holies. The Old Testament temple uh, and, the, and the early readers of this, the, the first readers of this would have been very aware of this. It was the innermost room, uh, it had this innermost room called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And it contained, amongst other things, the Ark of the Covenant, which held uh, the two stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written. And it was the very presence of God among his people that it somehow mysteriously, inexplicably housed the presence of God. That was the point of this room. Being in that room was a huge deal. It's like the Oval Office in the White House. Only certain people can, can, can go in there. It's by invitation only that someone can enter into the state room in Buckingham Palace. The Holy of Holies is like that but on an infinitely larger scale. These weren't man-made rules. These were the rules of the eternal God of the universe, the all-powerful creator God. 
the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, this central room which uh, was, was separated by this thick curtain, could only be entered by one person, the high priest. And he had to be from the tribe of Levi. He had to be a Levite. And he couldn't enter whenever he wanted. He could only enter that on one day per year, the day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he could only enter that room after he had uh, performed and, and gone through a whole lot of washing ceremonies where he himself had washed himself clean and washed his clothes and worn special clothes and put on special vestments and, and sacrificed a bull for his own sin and for his family's sin. And after that he could enter into the Holy of Holies on that one day per year. And if he disregarded any of that, if he was slack or lazy, if he performed his duties poorly, he would die. And if we look back in Leviticus 10, uh, Aaron's sons, Aaron was the first high priest, Aaron's sons, Nadab and and Abihu, they did this. They performed these duties poorly and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Being in God's presence was not something to be trifled with. It was serious business. For example, when, when, the law, when God first gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, he descended onto the mountain in a dense cloud. And the people had to be consecrated, washing their clothes, all that kind of stuff, for three days before God would even allow them to see the cloud. And if anybody stepped foot on the, on the mountain while the cloud was on the mountain, they were, they were, it was commanded they would, be, uh, they would be executed, they would be killed for it. And the executioners weren't even allowed to touch their bodies. They had to shoot them with arrows or stone them because they, it was just the holiness of God was so intense. And again... Hundreds of years later, David was retri- King David was retrieving the ark from the Philistines, and he was kind of careless with how he did it. He, he kind of thought he knew better than God did or how to transport the ark of, of the covenant, and so he, he disregarded God's law, and instead of having the priests carry it on, on poles, they put it on a brand new cart and had oxen pull it. And as it was coming along to Jerusalem, one of the oxen stumbled and the, the ark looked like it was about to fall and a guy named Uzzah who was standing near the ark put out his hand to stabilize the ark and he dropped dead then and there. The presence of God is no more small thing. But that's not because God is like a Hollywood superstar. He doesn't want to be bothered by mere mortals. It's because he is perfect in his holiness. Creatures under the curse of sin cannot come into his presence without being incinerated by the white hot holiness of God. It is serious business to come into the presence of God. And so for the writer of Hebrews to say, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary, that is earth-shattering. That is massive. It's quite likely something that we take for granted, but being able to come into the presence of God and to talk to him, to be with him, is quite simply the greatest privilege ever afforded to us, that we could come and be with the Lord. Our almighty, eternal, everlasting God, he is the epitome of all greatness, of all perfection, and all wonder. 
He is the source of satisfaction and contentment and joy, and he is the center of all truth and wonder, and he invites us, he wants us to be in his presence with him, to be near to him. And we enter his presence whenever we open our mouths or the voices of our hearts to speak to him in prayer. We enter his presence whenever we open his word to be taught by him, by his spirit. We enter his presence when we gather together as the family of God to worship him. It is a very tangible spiritual proximity that every Christian has the confidence of experiencing. And the reality for every single Christian is not only that we can enter the most holy place, that we can enter into the presence of God, but that we have every reason to do so boldly. That is outstanding. But there's, there's no reason why we should hesitate or balk at that. We can cry out to God night and day. We can come to him with whatever we need, big or small. See, when we're praying to God, when we come to God, we're not leaving a message. Maybe that's the way you think about prayer, that you kind of, what you're doing is you're calling God, he never answers, but you leave a message on his answering machine and you hope that he'll get back to you, and if he doesn't, you hope that you'll kind of find some semblance of a reply in his word and this big, vast maze here. No, when we come to pray, we are entering a dialogue with the Lord. We are entering his presence. And you need to know that you can call out to God day and night, and you won't bother him. And I know you probably know that, but you need to know that you can call out to God day and night. We have the same kind of boldness to enter God's presence as a child does to wake his parents in the night for a glass of water. So how can we have such boldness? Is this for people who are really good? Is this for people who have an unblemished history? Is this for people who have... uh, never been angry at God, who've had a per- got a perfect track record, who've reached some zenith of morality. No, it's solely by the blood of Jesus. It says to enter the sanctuary, or a boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. That's what gives us our boldness. He died and shed his blood in our place for our sins, for the judgment that we deserved. Here's the thing. Sin is serious and sin has a cost to it. The wages of sin is death, and that is not a rule that can be bent or broken. So the only way for sinners like you and I to ever be able to come into the presence of of, of God is if our sin is first washed off ourselves, and we can't wash ourselves. There's no amount of good that we can do that can wash our sin from us. There's no amount of money that you can give to the church or to charity that can wash your sin off you. There's no amount of time that you can spend reading God's word or going to church that can wash your sins off you. None of those things can wash us clean. What did we sing earlier? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what makes us whole again. And that's exactly what the blood of Jesus did. He he washed our sins off us so that we are clean and cleansed by his blood. Our sins no longer on us. We find this um, further explanation of this in verse 20. He says, He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. 
Jesus became like a living doorway, his body a curtain, like the curtain into the Holy of Holies. He opened up the way for sinners like you and I to be able to enter the presence of God. On one side of the curtain is all of sinful humanity, and on the other side of the curtain is the Godhead. And Jesus stood in that gap. He became the living curtain, and then he opened the curtain. He opened his flesh. His flesh was rent apart for us to enter. This is wonderful. A Christian is someone whose sins no longer count against them. It is no longer on their account. A Christian is someone who has racked up an enormous bill that they will never have to pay because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay our debt. This is the point of Jesus taking away our sin. It's so that we can actually come into the presence of God and have a relationship with God. If you're a Christian, then you have every reason to storm the wonderful presence of God. Charge it. Go bouldering into it because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The second thing that he says here that is true of us is that we have an advocate with God. Jesus continues to stand in that gap for us. And this is laid out in verse 21. It said earlier, and since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary... Now it says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. We talked about the high priest. His job was to enter the temple and to make sacrifices on that, on that one day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, but also on other days throughout the year. And this was done on behalf of God's people. He would wear a special vest with 12 precious stones on them, and he would enter into God's temple. These, these 12 stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel, the, all of God's people. And he would enter the temple representing God's people, and he would make sacrifices on behalf of God's people. He would, he would stand as their representative is their advocate. And Jesus, it says here, is our high priest. He is that same high priest for us. But there is a very key difference. The sacrifices made each day at the temple, they were a, a shadow of the real sacrifice to come. They, were, uh, they pointed forward and, and anticipated the day that Jesus would make the ultimate sacrifice. But those older sacrifices could never truly take away sin. Jesus' sacrifice of his life on the cross was a once-for-all sacrifice that could take away away all sins for as many as all of mankind for all of history on this side of eternity. So Jesus made that sacrifice, but then his role in our salvation is not over. It's not that Jesus died and then was resurrected and then ascended into heaven and then put his feet up to see what would happen. He is, it doesn't say that we have had a great high priest who once made a sacrifice. It says at least that, but it goes more than that. It says we have a great high priest. We still have him. He's ours right now. We currently right now have a high priest. And if you go back to Hebrews 7, we get a bit of an explanation of what this means. This author has been building this argument. It says from verse 24, Because Jesus remains forever, that is, he will not die again, he holds his priesthood permanently. 
Jesus' role as a priest is a permanent role. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Pay attention to that. Jesus always lives to intercede for those who come to God through him. Jesus lives now to intercede for us. At the right hand of God, he is there holding on to us, praying for us, interceding for us, saving us completely. Jesus wants us to be saved and stands at the right hand of God, bringing our case before the Father. That's why we sang earlier, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever, forever, lives and pleads for me. Here's the thing. Sin wages a constant battle against us to deceive our hearts and harden us into unbelief. When we were saved, it wasn't as if Satan threw up his hands and said, oh, I'm done, I've lost that battle, off to someone else now. No, sin will constantly come along to tear down everything that God is building up in you. So be assured that in Jesus Christ, you have a great high priest who is at the right-hand side of God day and night for your sake, praying for you and being your representative to the Father. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the sin within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all of my sin. And this brings glory to God the Father. He, together with God the Son and God the Spirit, contrived all of this before the creation of the world, so that all of creation would be united under him. It is to the joy of the Holy Spirit that he brings us to Jesus. It is to the joy of God the Son that he laid down his life for you and stands forever on your behalf. And it is to the joy of God the Father to receive all who come to the Son, all who trust in the Son, and to bring glory to himself. If you're here and you're a Christian, two things are eternally true of you. You have such unlimited and privileged access to God that you can boldly come to him. And you have an unlimited advocate with God that you can be assured that he will never cast you out or lose you. Can you see why we should depend upon the good news of Jesus for our discipleship? Why disregarding this stuff and just kind of going, I, I think I've got what it takes on my own now, God. I can kind of, I'm pedaling the bike now. You can let go, God. I'm fine now. No, we, we need the gospel daily to remember all these things that he has us. But these things are not without their implications. And there are many, but the writer of Hebrews gives us three. And, and these three implications are the, are the, imperatives, the three imperatives that follow the two indicatives. And, and without these, it would be like we'd have an unfinished sentence. And so the first of these, the first of these commands is to draw near. He writes... Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. In essence, he's saying, since you are able to draw near and you have every reason to draw near with boldness and with confidence, you should totally draw near. That's what he's saying. Since you can, you should But we'd probably ask at this point, and this is helpful for us to think through, 
Why would we want to draw near to God? What is it about the presence of God? What's there that would make us want to do that? And there are lots of reasons, lots of ways we can answer that question, but I want to give you two. The first answer is this. God is supremely concerned with his own glory. When we come into God's presence, we get a sense of his bigness and perfection and holiness, and we begin to feel insignificant, and that is a really good thing for us. Cast your minds back to what it would have been like on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. You're an Israelite standing there at the temple. You're on the outside watching what's going on. And the, and the priests are all uh, performing their duties and then the high priest does his thing and then goes in and the gravity would be different. Everything would be different. This is a day like un, unlike any other day on the calendar. Everything shifts. Everything is about God. You can't stand there on that day thinking to yourself, I'm kind of a big deal. You can't. It's all about God. This past week, a bunch of us went out to Roy's farm. Um, and uh, if you've been to Roy's farm, if you were there with us on the day, you would know just the wonderful sight it is to get a full view of, of Mount Beerwell. I think I've got photos on the screen behind me. That uh, picture there on the left-hand side, that's Mount Beerwell. That's from Roy's farm. And the longer you look at Mount Beerwell, the more insignificant you feel. Because it's huge. And you feel insignificant in size, you feel insignificant in age, and you feel insignificant in all the important ways that we should feel insignificant. And if someone was to come to us with a, life, with a, uh, a scaled down but perfect, perfect paper mache replica of Mount Biwa, we would be like, oh, that's nice, <laughs> that's cool, but it will never take our breath away. Not like that. Not like so. That photo does not do it justice. When we were there on Thursday, I just loved watching people get out of the car and they go, whoa, and be amazed at this glorious sight because it takes our breath away. You feel small in front of it and that's what takes your breath away. That's something so big and so huge and you feel teeny tiny in comparison. And on the Thursday morning, uh, a bunch of people climbed it. I didn't. I wasn't part of that crew who climbed it. But I got a text from Wayne, who did climb it, from when he got to the top of it, saying, we've arrived. And I looked up to see him, and I couldn't see him. Or Mel. They were tiny. And they couldn't see me. And that photo on the right is actually a photo taken by Wayne. Sorry, Wayne, just like credit for your photo. But there's a tiny little bit of clearing in the middle of that photo. Can you see it? That's Roy's farm. I don't know how many acres your farm is, Roy, but that's like the size of five cent coin. And you can't, like, I'm, I'm in that photo. You can't see me. I can't see me. I only know that I'm in, in, in that photo because I wasn't anywhere on the outside of that photo that time. And we feel teeny tiny in, in the face of greatness, in the face of bigness like that. And that is the pathway for our joy. That's what takes our breath away. That's what we want to experience. It's like we were, we were designed as humans to experience greatness. And when we come into the presence of God, we are coming into the presence of the greatest and biggest and most beautiful and wonderful thing in the universe. And that is the beginning point of our deepest joy. 
<clears throat> if you want your life as a Christian and your journey of discipleship to feel glib, to, be, to feel boring and beige and pale and to kind of taste like really watered-down cordial, make much of yourself. Make your faith all about you, and I guarantee you'll be drinking that pale green cordial stuff. It'll be boring. But if you want the kind of bulletproof eternal joy and a thrilling life with Christ, make it all about God. Come into his presence and let yourself feel massively insignificant. The second reason why we should want to be in God's presence is because he is the powerful one to deal with our greatest problems. When we are feeling anxious and worried and all wobbly and insecure, God is able to shoulder our burdens. And I can tell you that if you make a habit of going to God with your problems, they will cease, that, that will cease to be an idea or a proposition. Like the idea of God shouldering our problems ceases to be just an idea when we come to him over and over again. It will become a very tangible reality. The Puritan William Gurnall says this, In a word, Christian, rely upon your God and make daily applications to the throne of grace for continual supplies of strength. God is so pleased that you come to him in this way, and the more often, the better, and the more you come, the more you are welcome. Such a bountiful heart your God has, that while you are asking for a little peace and joy, he bids you to open your mouth wide, and he will fill it. Set your needs all before the Almighty. God has strength enough to give. When we come to God, we can say, Lord, take the heavy end of my burden, and he will. I had an experience of this actually at the farm. We camped there on the Wednesday night, and for whatever reason, woke up about 1 a.m. in the swag, just uh, a mess of anxiety and stress, just feeling awful. And I opened my Bible, and I went to God, and I said, because I read this William Gurnall quote that morning and I was like, God, you've got to hold, you've got to carry the heavy end of this. And the experience of the presence of God wasn't an idea in that moment. It was a tangible reality that brought undeniable peace and joy to my heart and I found myself worshipping God, just saying, God, I love you so much. That's why we should want to come into the presence of God because he can shoulder our burdens. It's for these reasons that we can be so bold. We can come to God when it says, let us draw near, let us draw near then with a true heart. A heart that is not distracted or divided because we know God is eager for us to be there. We can come in full assurance of faith, full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Don't hesitate don't balk when we come to God. Our sin has been paid for. Not a skerrick of it will be charged to us. Your sin no longer contaminates you before God. There is absolutely nothing, not a straw, that can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. 
How often is it, though, that we stand at a distance from God? How often are we distracted or hesitant to truly come to God? I need to repent in this. And I think we all need to repent in this. And I think it would be a good idea for us, I'm not finished my sermon, but can we just pause for a moment and repent together in prayer? Let's pray for a quick moment. Lord Jesus, you bid us to come to you. And the only reason, Lord, why we don't is because of our own self-centered hesitation and lack of faith. And so we want to repent of that and boldly come to you, Father, knowing full well that our sin has been paid for, our hearts have been washed clean. We thank you for that privilege, Father. Amen. The second imperative here in our passage is to hold unto hope. He writes in verse 23, Let us hold unto the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope is the belief, is the knowledge, is the, it's the having faith in the fact that one day our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will return and we will see him. Rivers of pleasure will stream from his heart to ours and we will be filled with sweet contentment and joy at the coming of our Lord and we will enjoy him and see him in unbroken bliss for eternity. That's going to be a wonderful day for all those who are in Christ. But that is in the future and our present reality can feel a whole lot different. We live in a world that strongly suggests that if we would simply abandon Jesus, we would be able to indulge in the present and immediate pleasures that lie before us. There is never going to be a shortage of reasons for us to abandon Christ. And if we don't have our sights set on the eternal life to come, then we will find ourselves only able to see the short-term and fleeting delights of the present. But the pleasures of sin are short and inconsiderable and are no match for all that God has promised us at the end of days. Preacher on Hebrews 11, Thomas Manton said, When we are tempted to murmur and repine under the cross, faith will assure us that though the way is rough, the end of the journey will be sweet. His promises protect our hearts from poison and preserve the soul in a holy bravery for God. Christian, God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Don't waver from the faith. Don't be seduced by the short and diminishing pleasures of sin. Yes, they seem more certain and more real than that which is future and invisible. But like sandcastles to a tide, they will quickly erode. Hold on to the hardened rock of the promises of God and his faithfulness to all of them. The final imperative is this. Think carefully how to encourage one another. The writer says, And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
So if the first imperative drew our attention upward to the bigness of God, and then the second imperative drew us forward to the future promises of God, then this third and final imperative draws our attention outward towards our brothers and sisters in the faith around us. The exhortation is this. Let us consider one another. And that word consider in the English is, is it's weak in the English. It's actually a lot stronger in the original text. It's not consider as in, do I want to take that car park or do I want to take this car park? It's not a, a quick consideration. It's more akin to brainstorming. Like, like spending time thinking and planning and preparing. That's the kind of weight that's on it. Spend time and brain space thinking about the brothers and sisters around you, one another around you. What should our thoughts be about the brothers and sisters around us? It's to stir up love and good works. It's to provoke love and good works. Not to just mildly hint at it or just kind of a little bit of a nudge, but it's to provoke. It's like an annoying thing, an irritating thing. Stir one another up to love and good works. We should be thinking in our minds, how can I cause my brothers and sisters in the faith around me to love more and increase in good works? What can I do to provoke and help my brother love his God and love his neighbor more? What can I put my hand to to help my sister increase in works that honor the Lord? If every one of us were to obey this command, we would feel a significant and immediate change in our church. Some professing Christians are content with, the, content with the idea that they don't need to be around a church community or that a church community needs to be around them. But this verse utterly, utterly undermines that. Show me a Christian who has isolated himself from the community of faith and I will show you a Christian who is slowly dying in their faith but a Christian who invests themselves meaningfully into the body of Christ, regardless of how broken they are or regardless of how broken the other people in the church are, you will see a person who over time is flourishing vigorously in their faith. This is why I believe the gathering of the body of Christ is so important, not just on Sundays but in life groups as well and other times that we can be together. Apparently in this church that I was, was receiving this letter for the first time, there were some people who had they'd fallen into the habit of neglecting the gathering. It wasn't that they occasionally missed one here or there. That's not who this is talking to. This is talking to somebody who was, had made a habit of neglecting the gathering. It had become more normal for them not to be there. It was more common to disregard the gathering. And the word habit there suggests that it wasn't like they were committed to their church and then, then one day they woke up and they were like, no more, I'm not going to do this anymore. Rather, this, this, the fact that it says that they made a habit of it suggests that something else, probably something really important, something quite worthwhile, maybe even justifiable, took precedence in their lives over the gathering. And the importance of the body of Christ dropped down a couple of notches. And then that happened again the next Sunday, or the next whenever they were gathering. And then the next, and then the next, until imperceptibly over time they came to fully neglect God's people. It became a habit. It became normal. 
And I'm sorry to say that I've seen this point proven again and again and again with dear friends of mine. Something pops up that seems to be more important than coming together to mutually edify and encourage the brothers and sisters around them. Things like kids' sport on a Sunday or extended work commitments or some other thing. And it slowly takes over. Church on Sundays or the gathering becomes unimportant. The confession of their hope dwindles and they eventually cease in coming to God at all. And if you're here and you're a, you're a shift worker or someone who is regularly required to work on Sundays, like regularly required to work on Sundays, can I talk to you for just a quick moment and know that I love you. You need to be especially vigilant about this. You're at higher risk than others of slipping away from the community because in our day and age, work is the unmovable thing. You would do well to ensure that you could make, make every gathering that you can. Whenever gathering you can, you do. Here's the thing. What we do on Sunday mornings and in midweek groups is of supreme significance. Not because the preaching's great, because I'm, I'm the one who does it. I know it's mediocre. It's not because the morning tea is cheesecake every single time. It's, it's not because I'm, it's because God commands us to. And because we need it. And this is just simply the commands of God. My hope for this, for us as a church, is that when we come into this room on a Sunday morning, I mean, it's just a timber room. But my hope is that as we come in here, the gravity would feel different. Like our equilibriums would be totally out of whack. Because we've come together to prioritize God and go, he is more important than anything else. And the center of gravity is not me or you in this room, but it is God Almighty. Like I would love for people to feel dizzy when they came to church, not out of some spiritual weird mumbo-jumbo stuff, but just out of like, just, this, the, just understanding that the, the glory of God is so sweet and delicious, more than anything else, to be desired more than anything else. And so much is achieved simply by showing up. Do you notice in the text how the phrase encouraging one another is set in contrast to neglecting the gathering? Did you know that just by coming to church, just being here, you don't have to do anything, just come and sit down and you encourage the believers around you. And then from there we can say, hey, how you doing to one another? We can love one another. We can pray for one another. We can, we can ask the question that last week's conversation was about. Hey, how's your dad going? How's your sister going? How'd the move go? How's the house build going? How are you feeling? We can be praying for one another. When we come together, we can sing together. And I often say this, and I, you probably get tired of me saying this, but when we sing together, we're not just individuals singing individual songs to God. We come together as the corporate gathering to sing corporate praise to God. So we're not just singing to God, but we're singing within earshot of one another so we can hear one another. So we should raise our voice because that encourages the believers. 
I love this room that it echoes so much because when we sing, we can hear it. It's wonderful. And we're not just hearing good voices, nice voices. We're hearing our brothers and sisters sing true things about God. And that uplifts us in our faith. And we should only increase in this, as it says, all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. Because God has made a way for us to come to him through Jesus Christ, and because Jesus Christ continues to stand at our defense, may we obey God by drawing close to him, by holding on to what we've believed about him, and by laying down our lives to encourage one another. Friends, God loves it when we obey him. Psalm 11.7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. When we obey him, it brings him great joy, and that is all the motivation that we need. So may we obey our Lord and Savior in all that he's commanded us to do in his word. May he be glorified in our obedience. May we draw near to him with assurance. May we hold fast to the confession of hope. And may we stir one another up to love and good works. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 